Hello and welcome to Definitions, the podcast where we crack the lid of the coffin on death, dying and all the morbid morsels in between. Before we go any further, halt and take heed. These are your words of warning. I will be discussing topics of a deathly nature that may be upsetting to some, including human pickle jars. Yeah. If you're not in the right headspace to get down and dirty with the maggots today, then that's fine. I totally get it. Sometimes you'd rather dig into cake and a good romance novel than a freshly dug grave. Now's your time to save yourself. If you're still here, I'll assume you've got your shovels at the ready. And believe me, you'll need them. Because today I'm asking the question, what is the Necropolis Railway? Throughout history, humans have had the gall, the audacity, and the gumption to die absolutely nowhere near their final resting place. By today's transport standards, it's a lot easier to fly, drive, sail, etc. your loved one's corpse across the globe. If someone dies abroad, they go through the process of repatriation. This could be someone who's on holiday, or someone who lives elsewhere and wishes to be returned to the country of their birth. There are countless other reasons a body might need to be transported long distances as well. Perhaps they were a soldier who died in combat. These days you'll be flown home by plane, but before this wonderful, hulking, possibly climate change inducing intervention, bodies had to be transferred by other means. We've all heard tales of the carts stacked high with bodies during plague times and the drolling tones of bring out your dead. You might have walked one of the coffin paths of West Scotland where tricky terrain and isolated homesteads made travels to the nearest burial ground long and arduous. Cruise ships have mortuaries on their lower decks. Though it may seem strange, this is most likely more to do with the high number of elderly passengers combined with how on some cruise holidays, you can be on the boat for weeks than any kind of nefarious, murdery activity. Though I would definitely read that book. People die all the time, for any manner of reasons, and it can happen literally anywhere. So why not on a cruise ship when you're in international waters? What a way to ruin a family holiday. It's kind of iconic, to be honest. Of course, not so long ago, without access to refrigeration or proper long-term sanitary storage methods, if you died on the high seas, you would most likely have been wrapped in a sheet, weighed down, the captain would have said a few words, and then you would have been dropped overboard into your watery grave. Alas, this didn't stop some from trying to find ways to preserve those who died at sea, or who had to be transported home via the open ocean. At the turn of the 19th century, war was raging between France and a coalition of other European countries. This is not a military podcast, and if, like me, the extent of your military history prowess starts and ends with the Year 9 curriculum on World War II, you will be thankful that I am not about to go into detail about the conflict. What I am going to tell you about is how Britain managed to pickle its most famous admiral. Yep, 
like kombucha. I know you were thinking it. Spoiler, I don't know how kombucha is made. Anyway, if you've been to London, you may have found yourself at Trafalgar Square in front of the National Gallery. Named after the 1805 battle between the French and British navies, at the centre of the square sits a column 169 foot tall, and at the very top, sword in hand, stands the tall, regal figure of Admiral Horatio Nelson, or, as Lord Byron put it, Britannia's God of War. From the age of 12, Nelson worked his way up through the ranks of the Royal Navy, travelling the world and leading his men in maverick, sometimes reckless charges against the enemy during wartime. This behaviour would lead to the loss of an eye, an arm, and eventually, his life. And if, like me, you're not a huge military history buff, but you still like the morbid stuff, and if you're here listening to this, I'll assume that you do. It's after Nelson's death that things really started to ferment. See, Nelson had the nerve to die whilst pacing the deck of his ship, the HMS Victory, on the 21st of October 1850 at the Battle of Trafalgar. He was hit by a musket ball that managed to shatter two of his ribs, ripping through his left lung and ending up lodged beneath his right shoulder blade. And if that wasn't enough, it also cut through a major artery. In other words, Nelson was not long for this world. It's reported that he survived only three hours after the fatal shot, just long enough to be informed that the British had secured a victory before drawing his final breath and being pronounced dead at 4.30 in the afternoon. On a side note, Nelson left last words for both his lover and their daughter, whose name was Horatia. Horatia. Honestly, some people just hate their kids. This is where Admiral Nelson takes a backseat in his own story, and instead, as hero of the hour, or 16 day or so voyage by sea, I introduce to you Sir William Beatty. Surgeon, Irishman, and man of the hour once everyone aboard the HMS Victory realised that Nelson's decomposing corpse was going to be a problem. A couple of weeks into the journey, the gases being released by his body had caused the lid of his casket to bust open so violently, one poor seaman was convinced the Admiral had come back from the dead. Clearly, a different solution was needed. FYI, this is why trapping a body in a completely airtight space is not a good idea. The bacteria that get to work eating away at us, remember autolysis from episode one? Cause gases like methane to be produced, which result in awful smells and a swelling of the body. All storing a body in an airtight container does is stop these gases from escaping and causes them to build up until, well, they find a way out, which can be pretty intense and gross, or in the case of William the Conqueror, somewhat explosive. So, William Beatty devised a plan to keep Nelson from rotting and preserve him for the extravagant funeral that no doubt awaited the decorated war hero and also to stop the rest of the crew from jumping overboard, either from the smell 
or the fear of zombie admirals rising from the dead. And what was his great idea? Brandy. A whole barrel of the stuff. For anyone, read my partner, who loves setting fire to the Christmas pudding multiple times, maybe this sounds great. But personally, I prefer my cocktails with a little less marinated admiral in them. The preservation properties of alcohol were pretty well documented by this point, and it wasn't unheard of to transport scientific specimens overseas by way of dunking them in a casket of rum. Except this wasn't an animal specimen from a far-flung corner of the earth. This was England's favorite sun. Alongside the brandy, BT also mixed in ethanol, with the thought that the higher the proof, the closer to God, or at least the greater chance of slowing down decomposition. And so for the remainder of the journey, Nelson slowly pickled in his rudimentary specimen jar until the ship made port back on the English coast. The Admiral was treated to a lavish funeral on his return and Beatty did very well for himself on the back of it, even rising to the title of King's Physician. And it seems his efforts to preserve Nelson mostly worked as even after all the time at sea and a closed casket tour of his coffin once back on dry land, aside from the removal of the soft abdominal tissue where most of the rapid decomp was taking place, Nelson was pretty much still intact for his burial at St. Paul's Cathedral, where his black sarcophagus still stands today. 46 years before Admiral Nelson was hanging out in the hull of a boat like the kimchi in my fridge, in fact, only a few years after he was born, the Industrial Revolution took the UK by storm. The discovery of steam power changed everything. Huge factories began to pop up in all the major cities and people flocked to them from the country to find work. I'm aware this is a gross oversimplification on a period of history that has had lasting effects on our modern world like no other, but I have neither the time nor the brain cell count to do it justice. So let's keep it simple. What do you need to know? Well, if people are flocking to certain areas in droves, that means a massive jump in the population. More people living in close quarters often equals more people tripping and whoops, there's a baby. Suddenly people moving from other parts of the country isn't the only reason the body count is booming. And more people being born in one place also means more people dying in that same place. Add to this a cholera epidemic and you're looking at a recipe for overcrowded cemetery disaster. And where is this place? London, of course. Let's imagine right before your very eyes, the world is going wibbly wobbly like a heat mirage or like you're looking at the world through a giant jelly. Everything you see is shimmering and fading out of focus. You rub your eyes and when you look up, you're not in Kansas anymore. The first thing you register is the rolling, clunking movement of the floor beneath you, like it's determined to throw you off balance. Except it can't, because you realize you're sitting on a plush upholstered bench. You look around and take in slightly raggedy red velvet curtains drawn shut over a window. 
You can't see any light peeking around the edges and figure it must be nighttime. The old fashioned lamp next to the door is flickering lowly and it makes the details of the small boxy train carriage hard to make out. But even in the dingy light, you can see there is someone sat on the bench opposite you. A gentleman dressed impeccably in a black suit, a tall hat on his head, but his chin is tucked down into the high collar of his shirt. It looks like an awfully uncomfortable position to take a nap. He'll surely wake with a terrible crick in his neck. His hands are pale, nearly bloodless, where they rest in his lap. The compartment is small enough that your knees are almost touching, but you'd feel terrible for waking him. Still, you don't know where you are or how you got here. The last thing you remember is coming back to you in fits and starts, odd flashes that you can't quite hold on to. You remember a friendly face leaning over you, a concerned pinch in their brow, something about leeches? Ah, yes, the doctor. You must have been sick, you realize, but nothing much else comes to mind. You jump as the train belts out a high screech into the night air and then laugh at your own nerves. The train seems to be slowing. The space between each of the rolling, jerking motions of the pistons growing longer. You decide that you need to find someone who can tell you where you're going, if you should get off at this stop. Shakily, you walk towards the door of the carriage and stop when your fingers touch the handle. It suddenly occurs to you that apart from the chugging rhythm of the trains, you can't hear anything. No one talking, no babies crying, no laughter or excited conversation of people on a journey to somewhere new. Taking a deep breath, you turn the handle and step out into the corridor. To your surprise, you are stood at the entry to another carriage, this one with rows of seating the whole way down. Every seat is filled and no one is speaking. No one is moving. It seems to you like none of these people are even breathing, which you realize all of a sudden is because they aren't. Everywhere you look, glazed and sunken eyes stare back at you, limbs stiff and all dressed in black. You turn and dash back into the small carriage where you first awoke. The gentleman with the brim of his top hat pulled low is still slumped in between the corner of the bench and the wall. Frustration and fear fly through you and reach out and roughly shake him by the shoulder. The top hat falls to the floor. Something in his jaw clicks and his mouth gapes open, the space between his lips black and endless. His eyes are cloudy, staring right through you, almost as though he can see. A creak behind you causes you to spin. A shadowed figure hunches in the dark of the corridor, 
the lamp in their hand only seeming to illuminate the lurid stretch of their smile as a long tongue flickers out and they whisper, Welcome to the Necropolis Railway. Not a single part of this story, of course, is true, aside from the name, but you have to admit it's fun to imagine it with all its gothic Victorian drama it deserves. The Necropolis Railway ran every day for 87 years between Waterloo Station and later Westminster Bridge Road in London and Brookwood Cemetery in Woking and what is now the city outskirts. This service transported around 2,000 bodies per year out of the overcrowded city. Britain's spookiest railway line started in 1854 and was still in operation as late as the 1940s, carrying the dead to pastures new. Of course, the corpses weren't propped upright in their seats, a la a regular passenger train, but rather they would be slotted into the carriages in their coffins. There were, of course, because it was the Victorian era, strict separations of class. Not only did the coffins board the train, but so did those mourners who had turned out for the funeral. The Necropolis Company not only offered transport for the dead, but full funeral services as well. Only if you could afford it, though. Those mourners who paid for first and second class tickets would be allowed to see the coffin carrying their loved one loaded on board the train, whilst those who could only afford third class tickets were allowed no such privilege and were in fact completely sectioned off so that the first and second class passengers couldn't even be offended by the sight of them. The journey to Brookwood Cemetery would have been a joy for those used to the dreary London smog. An hour's journey through green countryside and quaint villages which culminated at the Necropolis Junction, where the deceased and their mourners alike would alight from the train and make their way to peaceful, open fields of the cemetery. In a city where people would kill for space, they were also dying to leave. If you've ever walked past a cemetery and thought it oddly high above the ground, or possibly wondered why they built it on a hill, just know that it's because there are so many bodies buried there that the height of the ground had to be raised to keep them all in. In light of this, it's easy to see how a company offering an escape from overcrowding became so popular in such a short space of time, and for such a long time afterwards. It wasn't until that more cemeteries started popping up around London's city limits, and new technological advancements like fancy motorcars made travelling distances much easier, that the Necropolis Railway began to see a decline. You can still see the facade of the Necropolis Company building on Westminster Bridge Road and peer at a doorway where more people have probably gone in than will ever come out. The idea of loading our dead onto trains may seem strange to us now, but at the time, without cars it was the best option, and an affordable one too. Not only that, but after the 1851 Burial Act, which prohibited burials from taking place in the most built-up areas of London, the people who lived there weren't left with much choice. Mind you, if the cemeteries were that overflowing, I can only imagine how easy snatching a body here and there to sell to anatomists would have been. 
This kind of highly supervised travel would certainly have kept the deceased out of the hands of the body snatchers and buried far enough away that they wouldn't have to worry about finding their loved ones on the dissection table. Although, if you had someone on the inside, it could be the perfect plot. I'd also read that book. Even in today's world, we're dealing with problems of space when it comes to burying our dead. Many cemeteries are running out of space and having to think up new solutions. I think that a lot of the issues stem from the idea that once you've got the title deeds and have been buried, that small piece of the planet is yours forever. But as much as we might like to think this, it's just not true or feasible. Throughout history, bodies have been dug up or disinterred to make space for more bodies or roads or student flat blocks. It wasn't so long ago that in some places you would rent your grave and once all of the soft tissue had decomposed, your bones would be dug up and placed in an ossuary or catacomb. Kind of like Marie Kondo with corpses. You say thank you to the hole that housed you for a while and then you allow your bones to be neatly stacked on a shelf. In Louisiana, where the ground is below sea level, burial is impossible in some places. Coffins just won't stay six feet under. Instead, in some instances, they built impressive tombs. More practically though, they also built walls of what looked like rows and rows of pizza ovens. Once the body has been placed inside and the flesh has rotted away, the bones can be neatly swept to the back and down a chute to their final resting place. Even in Germany today, most burial plots are leased for about 20 years. In Israel, where according to the Jewish tradition, a body must be buried within 24 hours and be buried in the earth, although a few genius architects have come up with a way to do this and save space. Instead of expanding outwards, they're looking upwards. High rise cemeteries with individual plots filled with soil could be the future of Jewish burial. And who knows what else? So there you have it. Some bizarre tales of how we've transported the dead and why. If, like me, you are also a lover of dark, strange, and possibly cursed literature, join me over on TikTok at Definitions where I chronicle and recommend all of my favourite morbid books. If you have any thoughts to share about the podcast or your own impending mortality, drop them in the comments. Reviews and ratings go a long way in helping to get this podcast out there and I greatly appreciate the support. I want to tell you guys about all this weird stuff as much as you want to hear about it. The more you let me know you're out there listening, the more I'm inspired to delve into the depths of the internet and my local library to bring you these twisted tales. The Definitions podcast is researched, written and read by me, Jasper Chanter, with music provided by Zapsplat. Anyway, chop chop, break's over, pick that shovel up, that grave's not going to dig itself. Bye bye for now listeners, catch you on the other side.